0: esteemed audience and welcome to another episode of middle grade ninja I'm your host Rob Kent and as you know I'm the author of Banneker bones and the giant robot bees and you can get that wonderful novel as an audiobook a paperback in the ebook is free yes free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this wherever fine ebooks are sold Uh, under the super secret pen name, Robert Kent. I've written some novels for older readers. Uh, More information about those as well as thousands of interviews with authors, literary agents, editors, PR professionals, all the world's best people available for you along with the back catalog of this show at middlegradeninja.com. Couldn't be more thrilled. Our cup runneth over uh, on this particular episode. First episode of 2022 Esteemed Audience and we're starting off right. We have three extraordinary guests. We're gonna be joined by Adama Ba. We're gonna be joined by Fresh Dottori John and Salvador Gomez Colon. Welcome everyone. So thrilled you made time for Middle Grade Ninja. So regular listeners of the show know that I never summarized anyone else's biography or anyone else's book. Why would I make you sit there painfully struggling to listen to me uh, make a mess of both of those things? Uh, and I'm going to go in the order uh, that your publicist sent me your names. only a fair way to do it. Uh, and so, Adama, I'm going to ask you to go first and give us a uh, give steep audience an overview of your background.
1: Hi, my name is Adama Ba. I grew up in Harlem and I am from New York City, currently live in a Bronx. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about me.
0: Uh, and then Salvador, you're next on the publicist list.
2: Hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Rob. I'm Salvador Gomez Colon, a 19-year-old climate resilience advocate from San Juan, Puerto Rico, born and raised on the island. Uh, I'm the founder of Light and Hope for Puerto Rico, which is an initiative that I created after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico in 2017, and I'm the author of Hurricane, My Story of Resilience, and currently an undergrad here at Yale. Ah, And then Fresca? Hi,
3: guys. I'm Freshta, and I'm from Afghanistan. I'm a community activist and an entrepreneur and an author, and I'm so glad to be here today. Thank you, guys.
0: And Freshta, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and tell us about the Eyewitness series that we're here to talk about.
3: Yeah, it's a series where, um, you know, a few of us activists from around the globe, we are sharing our stories of everything that we have overcome and the many goals that we have not only for improving our own communities, but how we can help um, each other and get the unheard social issues um, you know, heard on a bigger scale to the right leaders, to our you know, peers and the younger generation, the generations um, younger than us so that they can also grow up to be informed, but then also make the right changes as needed.
0: Ah, and while we're uh, with you, why don't you go ahead and tell us about your book, which just released here on January 11th, Wink, wink um, uh, My Story of Persecution. Or, I'm sorry, Courage, colon My Story of Persecution.
3: Yeah, um, so I was so um, honored to be part of this series, and this was a story that I had been wanting to share for a very long time. Um, this is very close to my heart, and just With everything that's uh, happened in my country in August and the Taliban taking over again, there were a lot of issues that the world didn't know on top of just knowing that, yeah, Afghanistan has been dominated by terrorism for over two decades. There was this one issue of, you know, the genocide that's happening against my ethnic group that the world does not know about, despite how involved the international world is in my country and has been for centuries. And you know, as Hazaras, we are not only native, uh, the in- native ethnic group in the country, um, We are also now the minority. We went from being the majority from about 67% of the national population to now under 7%. And I don't know why this still has not been counted as a genocide. It's you know, a lot of people who have had a hand in this continue to be empowered. Um, by different leaders and, you know, not only from Afghanistan but around the world that are helping them continue to get empowered, corrupt warlords that are taking position and seats time after time. And I just wanted to make sure that this is starting to be heard about because as Hazaras, we have done absolutely nothing wrong. You know, it's not a crime to be a Hazara. And the only comparison that I can make, and this is probably not even um, right of me to say, but, you know, a lot of the oppression that happened to uh, the, our African-American community, to our Native American community, are, and even, you know, during the Holocaust, these are very similar things that are happening to Hazaras even today. You know, Hazaras are being hung upside down, and, you know, they're, they are literally being, you um, persecuted in broad daylight i remember and when i was in fourth grade all these hazara communities were being attacked and there were so many hazara families trying to protest this but the government continued to push them away they silenced them they made sure that they were intentionally barred from getting any access to even electricity you know this was you know all of these systemic racism and systemic barriers that were being intentionally created by the Afghan government, but then on top of that, other powers that were helping them make that a possibility.
0: Uh, and then um, we're gonna come back. I've got lots of follow-up questions on that, but uh, for our, uh, our overview, uh, Salvador, why don't you tell us about Hurricane, my story of resilience?
2: So, Hurricane. My story of resilience uh, tells, well, my story of of living through uh, Hurricane Maria and the period after, in which I founded Light and Hope for Puerto Rico. So, it narrates uh, not only my experience of going through the hurricane and, and how it felt, you know, you know sharing the, the the sort of what I was seeing, what I was feeling during the hurricane itself and the days after, but also the process of of you know, first envisioning and then creating and bringing to life a humanitarian initiative like Light and Hope of Puerto Rico. So it's, it's, it's a two part narrative encompassed in one. It's, it's a story not only of, of a watershed moment in my life but also what I did with that experience.
0: Uh, and then uh, Adama, what does esteemed
1: audience need to know about accused, my story of injustice? Sure. Um, so accused is my story um, of what happened to me after 9-11. So after 9-11, a lot of Muslims were being rounded up. Mostly undocumented males were being rounded up. I was the first minor female to be detained and accused of terrorism after 9-11 in New York City. So this my book goes into details about my interrogation. It's something, even though I advocate now. And I often tell my story, but I never went into details about that story. And so this is why that book is very important, because for the first time, obviously I couldn't fit everything in the book, but the most important parts are in that book.
0: And I don't know who is the ideal reader for this book?
1: So anybody, to be honest with you, I think, you know, I... I'm 33 now. And a lot of the things that I advocate for now are things that people in the 80s advocated for. And so things haven't really changed. So this book is for any generation because the only way we can have positive change is by allowing those that are impacted to be part of that change, uh, You know, to make those changes, to be at the table. Um, but until we have that, we're going to have the same cycle and circle of trauma that's being inflicted on communities of color.
2: And Salvador, is there an ideal reader for your book? I think, I think Autumn's answer about her book is, is pretty spot on, I'd say, about my book as well. I think that uh, while the Eyewitness series books are, are written in, in a style that's for, geared for middle grade readers, and that just means the language is very accessible, um, I think that, uh, I, I'd say that also my, my story is is timeless in the sense that it doesn't just, you know, appeal to, to young people, really anyone uh, who wants a, a, a perspective on what it's like to live in a climate vulnerable community, in a community, you know, uh, facing multiple hazards a year of natural disasters. Um, but also, I'd say, I'd say it, as the title says, a story of resilience of taking an experience like living through a climate disaster, and using that as a way of empowering other people uh, through a feature that's going to be fraught with climate related disasters, uh, and climate change and its effects. So I'd say that, my story, while well written for middle-grade readers, uh, it's certainly a story that everyone can read, especially if you're interested in, in hearing a perspective of what it's like to live in a climate vulnerable region facing climate disaster, uh, but also uh, a firsthand narrative of grassroots work engaging with climate resilience.
0: Uh, to have you got a specific reader in mind for your for your book?
3: Um, I think they both did a great job of summing that up, and you know I have to agree with everything that they said. Although this was supposed to meant for a younger audience, this is really accessible to everyone because the content that we're sharing in these stories are you know real social issues that are affecting large communities, and there are a lot of people. You know whether you're young, whether you're old, you know it doesn't matter where you are in the age range. This is for you, and this is to. Um, you know, share somebody else's journey with you and see how you can join that fight um, in improving society.
0: So we're talking about um, you know, some, some heavy real real world stuff, specifically aimed at a younger audience. And, and so I'm fascinated to, to know, and Fresher, we'll start with you, um, when you're talking about um, genocide, when you're talking about it, I know your family members face kidnappings and daily murder attempts uh, on, the, on the bus, on the way to school, just, just all around. When you're talking about, uh, uh, about the Taliban, how do you phrase that or how do you, how do you formulate that for younger readers without undercutting the, the dark truth that they need to be aware of to understand the situation?
3: Yeah, you know, that's something that I've had a very um, internal conflict with because, you know, I want to be sensitive to, um, you know, their age and their background, but at the same time, you know, There are a lot of young children, like my own, you know, family members, my nieces and my nephew, ages, you know, three to 11, that are experiencing these things right now. Um, So, you know, part of me is like, no, I want to educate them, and I want to let them know real things that are happening to people around their age. Um, At the same time, I don't know where to make that a healthy line, because when I, Interact with you know a group of young people. Um, I want to inform them as best I can while trying to give them details, but still being sensitive to their understanding. If that makes sense.
0: So where where would you set which where would you draw the line? This is a question I'm going to ask all of you. uh, But first, just staying with you for a moment, where would you draw the line? What would be something that might be uh, too intense for younger readers? Yeah,
3: um, you know, I would, I usually, you know, just tell, share with them, like, the, the things that would happen to you as a young Hazara girl if you went outside. Like, if I wanted to play with a guy, they would usually be very mean, and they would say very sexist things. Um, so, you know, those are things that I wouldn't mind sharing. But when it comes to, like, what happened when my siblings were kidnapped, or, you you know, the, the different um, strategies that were used to try to kill and murder my family and myself are those that I, that I try to um, kind of verbalize differently or try to not share as much about to young readers.
0: Well, and then, uh, I have the same uh, question to you because you're dealing with, you were um, 13 right after 9-11 and, and, and being openly um, treated badly. Um, it's maybe the, the tritest possible way to, to phrase that. How do you approach uh, that for younger readers?
1: So, uh, you know, when I begin an event, I always tell them, listen, my story is not easy. It's very traumatic. And listening tra- to trauma can also cause trauma. So, I always open a room to listen. If you need to step out, let me know. If you need to do a check in with me after, let me know. Um, that's why it was very important for me in my book to mention seek help if you, ne- if you need it. Um, you know, even though a lot of the people that we tell our stories to weren't there, they're they're placing their own image and they're placing their own scenario in their head. And again, this can cause trauma, it can cause fear, because like all of us, we are just victims and this just randomly happened to us. And in the, as a Black woman, when I tell my story to other young Black girls, they're like, well, this could happen to me too. And I'm like, and that's an understandable fear. And that's why it's important to seek the help if you need it.
0: Uh, in Salvador, um, something as uh, catastrophic as a, as a hurricane, how, what details do you choose to share with young readers and what might you hold back to make it age appropriate?
2: So I, I sort of, my writing process and choosing what to share and what not to share in, in Hurricane, uh, I'd say that I shared 99% um, of my observations and my feelings. I think that one of the things that I wanted Hurricane to be um, and, and be faithful to was my reflection of, of the emotions that I felt living through the hurricane, but also the sort of the 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 lingering effects it had on my mindset and on my emotions, even even years after, to this day, after nearly three years after Hurricane Maria. I'd say that um, in terms of what I chose to admit, I, I'm very I'm very frank about the observations I make about the you know the distributions that I that I did in different towns. You know, when I saw you know houses just torn to shreds from winds and, and, and dead livestock. And, and um, I mean, unfortunately I even saw corpses, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the ground. And, and I'd say like in un, under debris and all that. And I think that obvi- for, for obvious purposes, I think that uh, especially on, on Autumn's point of, you know, not re-traumatizing or initiating trauma, I think that there's, there's details there that don't have to be shared. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it's, it wouldn't be prudent for me to, to share, uh, the state of of a rotting living being. Um, I think that that's that's pretty pretty. That's where you draw the line. But I but I think I'd say that I held nothing back. Certainly in, in my emotions and in sort of the you know the the vulnerability and and the loneliness and the despair that I felt. I, I'm faithful to it. I'm honest about it. And I think that that's part of what what makes my narrative uh useful and 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 I'd say like compelling to young readers is the fact that I'm able to do that uh, in a way that I hold nothing back
0: read a a quote about trauma, and I can't, oh, it was uh, Adama, who said that when you go through trauma, you think that the best way to heal is to forget it, but then you realize that the best way to heal is to address it. So in the same line, how does addressing it help with that healing process?
1: So for me, I really didn't have anybody to talk to. Um, I was fearful of taking therapy because uh, I was afraid that they were going to use that against me. I mean, they were accusing me of being a potential suicide bomber. I think the last thing I needed was to take therapy. <laughs> um, so, you know, I it, by doing a lot of these events and these podcasts that we're doing, I was able to share my story. And The more that I shared, the more I healed. And I healed because I released a lot of my anger out in my story. I'm not, in, I wouldn't tell my story angry or any, how I'm talking to you is how I would tell my story. But I was able to look into those small details and say, wow, well, this is what happened to me. And this is how I felt. But you know what? This is what I should have done different. I was able to reevaluate everything. Um, but it took me a long time to realize that staying silent is not the way you have to talk. And once you talk, you put your story out there, You 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 send a wave of change and at that moment, I didn't realize it, and now look, I'm here with a book, <laughs> so it's it's working. <laughs>
0: and a follow-up uh, for you, um, because I know this is some, we're talking about something that happened when you were 16, uh, and obviously uh, continued on, and it sounds like it continues on in, into the present. Um, and now you have two young children, right? How does having children of your own impact the way you go about telling the story or
1: doesn't? Uh, it impacts my parenting. I think uh, most parents, I know you guys don't are not parents, but the two authors, <laughs> um, we parent based on fear. So I try not to project my fear to my children. I'm trying to not make sure, um, they're not, not to be afraid of the world. Um, I want to protect them from everything, but In reality, I have to allow them to explore. Um, My best way is they're too young to know my story. Um, They're only seven and six. But if they ever want to hear it, I want to be the one to tell them. But I feel like the world that we live in, people are going to tell them, oh, your mom wrote a book. So sooner or later, I have to sit with them and tell them that mommy wrote a book and this is what it's about. Um, But at the same time, it has to be age appropriate because their minds are young I'm for, you know, a child should be in their age bracket, like in their mind. They shouldn't be exposed to everything. (laughs) So um, I just want to tell them in a healthy way. Does I hope that makes sense?
0: (laughs) Salvador, same uh, question to you. Have you found writing and sharing this story to help you with the trauma to process?
2: I'd say almost certainly. Uh, I think that after the sort of the, the year, bit over a year after Hurricane Maria and, and, and living through this and, and the work that I did and seeing what I did uh, in the communities that I that I work with, um, I struggled to, to internalize and sort of to understand what I saw and and a lot of it, you know, for a long time, I just put it aside and put it to the back of my head, sort of like Adama was setting, just for trying to forget it and ignoring it um, and ended up uh, sort of brewing it and, and, and sort of storming down on me. I. I I, I went I moved to boarding school after 10th grade um, and it was in New England so when winter came around and you know the sun starts setting at 4 pm and and it gets all gloomy and cold seasonal affective disorder kicks in um, I started struggling a lot sort of emotionally but it was mostly I was sort of realizing that I never really processed what I felt and what I saw and I tried to brush over it really quickly and, and part of when I got into the nitty-gritty of light and hope for Puerto Rico it was sort of that was a dis- distraction for me and I was Every every waking hour that I did was either doing homework, what that was when school was back in order, or working on Light and Hope. And I never took a moment in, in a whole year to reckon with how I felt and understand my feelings and accept them to a degree. I also faced resistance, uh, obviously, for different reasons, Autumn, but to seek professional help. And it wasn't until like February of, of 19 that I went to a, to a counselor in my school and I was like, you know, let's talk about how I feel. And it ended up being fantastic. I think that especially in latino culture um or i guess in in for all males in, you know male persons of color i think there's a lot of stigma uh for us men to to seek professional help especially with regards to like mental health um and i have people in my own family tell me oh Sana, what what's your feeling is just it's just a, it's just a blip you'll be you'll be fine just just wait you don't need to talk to a, to a to a to a psychiatrist or a counselor about it um but i was like no i think i need i need some help um and i sought it out and it was great um and that visit that i had was excellent learned more about myself than i knew um you know 17 years prior um and it was very very uh, positive experience so i'd say that then the process of writing the you know writing the book and 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 sort of formulating my story and this is in the whole process during 2020 especially in a time during covid when all of us were reckoning with what was going on around us i'd say that writing and putting all this into words was really helpful in sort of cementing, a te- it's a testament so to what I felt, but it really cements all of my feelings um, in a way that I can now look at it and be like, oh, this is, this is how I felt. Um, and I no longer have to struggle with sort of figuring out how I felt because I, I already did that with, with the book. So I think the, the book is, cert- writing the book and, and having the book be out there is certainly a, a really helpful in terms of processing trauma and, and sort of reckoning with it personally.
0: Uh, and since this is a show for writers, you mentioned seasonal affective disorder, um, which is, uh, we, we we get that really bad here in Indiana. We have our uh, Gothic Hoosier winters where everything just turns gray and terrible and, and naturally lends to dark thoughts. Uh, about $20 on uh, the retailer of your site, you can go and you can get what's called a sad lamp, esteemed audience, uh, that will shine sunlight directly on you and at least help with that. You still wanna write, your trauma down, because it sounds like that helps you um, make sense of it and and, and organize it and, and, and put it down so where you can, you know, you can you can recognize it. But that light, especially you writers, because you're going to, you have to sit in front of a computer, a typewriter, a notepad, whatever you're writing on, uh, hopefully for, for a significant period of time every day anyway, just put your sad lamp right next to you, have that shine on you, you get your writing done, you're also going to combat the seasonal affective disorder, it's win-win. Uh, and then uh, fresh the same question over to you. Did you find writing to help you to process your trauma without re-traumatizing yourself?
3: You know, for me, it was a very, very hard battle. Um, I felt like through writing this story, I was able to, you know, get out the voice like, of my friends and my dad, you know, my, my friends got shot and killed like around the same time that I moved to the US. Um, And it's, I think, towards kind of towards the end of the book, um, I mentioned that and then, you know, my father too, it was a very hard time. So because there, there was so much trauma I was dealing with, I, my memory had actually blocked a lot of my memories from like childhood from my time in Afghanistan. So while I was writing this, I had to you know, try really hard. I had to, you know, get a lot of therapy because it was kind of re-traumatizing. But at the same time, it was something that I wanted to do because to me, it meant that I was continuing to fight for my friends, for my father and all the sacrifices that he and my mom made for me to be able to get my education, to fight for everyone else who had to face persecution, who had to face oppression. Um, you know, so I would say it was a little bit of both, it was healing, but through it also there was a lot of trauma that was coming back that was, um, but at the same time, you know, it was helping me um, deal with it in a way that I was able to share it with an audience and so that they're aware of issues that are happening. Um, So for me, it was traumatizing, but in a sense also very healing.
0: And did, uh, sitting down and and, and getting this out on on the paper, did that help you um, to unblock those memories permanently now that they're they're accessible to you?
3: Yeah, um, it does. You know, like there was, for a big part of my life back at home, I was a shepherd and my memory had like completely blocked a lot of those. But as we, as I started like writing this book and, you know, talking with, the different editors, I was able to um, just sit down and like start to find like remember things slowly, slowly and slowly and um, and it was just so crazy to see like all of it coming together in this like big picture and um, things that I was afraid to share, afraid to want to remember, um, but when I did remember and it all came back to me, I was like, you know, this is part of my story and this is what happened and I can no longer be afraid of it preventing me from moving forward, from, you know, helping everyone else.
0: Hi, and you mentioned writing process, which is the bread and butter of the, the middle grade ninja show. We love writing process. Um, so Adama, let's uh, start with you. What was the process that got you involved with this project, and then what was your writing process like to to complete your book?
1: Um, I think Freshta and Salvador said it like (laughs) it was very stressful. Um, The process, I just I remember just getting that email. um, The my friend who did the documentary, or my former teacher, who did the documentary on me, actually introduced me to the author and everyone, uh, not the author, but the company. And um, they're like, hey, do you want to tell your story? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing anything else. Sure. (laughs) But I didn't understand what I was signing up for. (laughs) Um, Like you both said, it was so traumatic. Because like I said, I talk about my story often, but I haven't gone into details. So talking about actually writing down about the officer that yelled at me or the officer that interrogated me, talking about the strip searches. But It's one thing about saying it and actually seeing it in words, and these are your words. And the reality of it, it was, now that it's over, I'm I'm glad, but it felt like years, but it wasn't years. Um, But honestly, it was worth it. It was really worth it because I was able to uh, heal in the process and address certain things that I didn't address. And I remember things that I forgot about that I feel like helped a lot of people. Um, I often get people who come to me, well, this happened to me. Um, I've been getting a lot of border cases recently. Um, I advocate for immigration reform. So I have a lot of people who come from the border that are telling me their stories. It's pretty traumatic. But the fact that they trust me to tell them, you know, people are, can be very vulnerable, letting, telling you all this information. But it's a blessing that they trust me. And it's because of the book. It's because of the documentary. It's because I'm out there talking. I don't want to say i've become the face of immigration reform but it feels like it's sometimes when they're just reaching out to you um but yeah i the writing process was hard in the sense of just emotionally but in terms of writing it was okay and plus we had editors to help us with the grammar if we had any issues because i think you know part of it i was writing with emotions and then they're like, well, that doesn't make sense. And I'm like, but I was angry. <laughs> but yeah, we had a lot of support throughout the way. Um, I don't know if you guys had the same, but I had a lot of support uh, throughout the way. And if you guys didn't, I did not say that. <laughs> so don't go back and tell them.
0: <laughs> are we talking, you get up every day and you have a word count specific that you need to meet? Or what was the process of, of, of getting the, the, actual, the actual writing? How much writing are you doing? Did you write every day? Did you write just when you when you when you felt
1: it so i had part of my book already written um, so as we were halfway done but i had to go back and add special, uh, certain details but we had a timeline for everything um they needed it within a week or a month certain decisions were needed to be made like right there and then i need you know so um, a lot of emails <laughs> everything was done via email because it was covid and a lot of phone calls a lot of zoom Um, So I guess the pandemic helped with that because we didn't have to show up in person, um, but which was good. It worked out.
0: Uh, And then Salvador, uh, how did you get involved with the project? What was your writing process like?
2: Yeah, so my involvement with the Eyewitness Series in this project uh, starts in 2018. Uh, So because of the work that I did in Puerto Rico with Light and Hope, uh, Dave Eggers and Amanda Yuli, who are series editors um, and dear mentors of mine, uh, a, they reached out to me in 2018 to be a part of the inaugural International Congress of Youth Voices, uh, which brings together uh, 100 of the world's leading young activists and writers um, and puts, brings together and puts us in a summit um, in San Francisco in 2018 uh, for a weekend. And after I first engaged in the International Congress of Youth Voices, I stayed very much close in touch with Amanda and Dave. In 2018, we hosted our second international Congress of Youth Voices in San Juan, which is where I met Fresta in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, and when February, March of 2020 comes around, the pandemic just began. Um, a, Amanda reaches out to me, and she's like, hey, Salvador, you know, we, we, we want to get you, want to get a, a better perspective of your story. Um, so would you mind like sitting down uh, for some phone interviews, uh, for the next few months and just, just talking with us. And I was like, of course, I mean, I, I wasn't sure what the project was for, but um, I have a lot of faith and trust in Amanda and Dave. And I was like, of course, I mean, after what you've done for me, of course, is the least I can do. So we did dozens of hours of interviews um, for many weeks uh, in March through April, May, June. Um, and all of a sudden, um, I'd say at the, at the end of this, it, it I'd say it's like, I think all of us share the, the sense of surprise, or at least in my case, Amanda tells me, well, awesome. Um, so we shared your story with Norton and they want you to write a book about it. And I was like, what? Um, And sort of going from not really, not having no idea what this was for and then hearing that someone like Norton is interested in in your publishing your story, to me was was surreal. And I was like, of course, I mean, wow, yes. Um, So luckily, I guess, similar to Adama, um, because those interviews were were there, Norton knew what they wanted um, and sort of what they wanted from, from each story uh, we were told, at least I was told that in there that the story was geared for middle grade readers, which for me was a challenge um, because, well, much of the writing that I'd done um, was either, you know, opinion editorials for, for CNN or, or Time or Teen Vogue that I was contributing to, um, which is for, you know, older audiences or academic writing I was doing in school. Um, so I remember a lot of the, one of the most challenging things about the writing process in general was being concise with my language, being straightforward in my language, you know, not using many commas and semicolons and being, you know, using full stops, uh, which for me was, was challenging, but um, it's definitely helped help me improve my, you know, my, my concision and also my ability to convey my emotions in a, in a more straightforward manner that not only middle grade readers would understand, but also everyone would would be able to understand just uh, by reading it quickly. So the writing process, like, also like Adama, you know, it'd be like, okay, by the end of the month, we want, uh, uh a, th- a quarter three quarters of the manuscript or like full manuscript and then the editors would come back with comments and be like hey these are the comments we have given back for that you know by the end of the week or sometimes it's like okay um this is closer to pub date um or when the manuscript was finalized like around may of of this year um it'd be like, okay editors have a question about this line uh please respond you know in the next few hours um it was it was definitely exciting i'd say it was an exciting process Yes, like, like I think we've all said, the experience of writing about our experience specifically was, it was hard, it was hard at many moments, but I'd say that the process per se was, I, I'd say for me was exciting, very exciting. And were you uh, in school while you were doing this? Yes, I was. Uh, well, I mean, so we started the interviews and all that, I believe March, April, 2020. Uh, and I was in school, I was in virtual school, uh, through June of 2020. And then summer came around and I was, I was working um, and also working on this book. Um, and then, yeah, then school started, senior year started in, in September. I was working on college applications and school work and this book on top of that. And then working with my humanitarian work and, and activism and doing all sorts of virtual speaking engagements. So it was definitely a lot going on. My senior fall was very intense. Uh, but it was definitely all worth it. And it was very exciting and gratifying. I
0: feel like if we lived in a better world, we could just say, hey world, go away for a month. I need to do a book. And then you come back and I'll I'll have written this thing and we can get back and pick up where we left off. Uh, Audhima, I don't suppose your kids were were willing to extend that offer?
1: So surprisingly, my kids were around me. They were running around doing their own thing because it was a pandemic. So school was closed. And, you know, they were doing a virtual learning. And I would just write and I would sometimes I would blank out and I'm like, oh, my God, my kids are here because <laughs> um, you go into deep thought. Um, but it was honestly, it was the way I cope with the emotions. I did a lot of hiking around that time because hiking became a big thing during the pandemic. So I would just get in a car and like, let's go. We're going to go for a hike now. <laughs> but it was worth it. It was really worth it.
0: Uh, And Fresha, uh, how did you get involved with the project and what was your process like?
3: Yeah, so mine is very similar to Salvador's. So I also got involved with International Congress of Youth Voices and I met Dave and Amanda, who were a big part of, you know, this whole uh, process and project that we did together. Um, I mean, Amanda and I had kept in touch a lot over the couple years that we had met in um, Puerto Rico, and she was familiar with the work that I had been doing um, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but then also um, some overseas in a a couple of the projects that I had been working on. And she, so I want to say this was last year, um, during my junior year in college, she reached out to me and, you know, she was like, hey, we've, you know, looked at all the work you're doing we think it'd, you know, it'd be interesting for you to share your story and first i was like maybe her email got hacked and so you know she's like trying to trick me someone's there and then i like, didn't respond and then she like got back to me again i was like oh hey i just wanted to make sure like this was you um yeah so after that i was just you know um Very honored. I was very moved. I was like, "You think um, I'm worthy of you know being part of this project and um, you know sharing my story?" And so we kind of talked through it and what it would look like. And like Salvador said, if it hadn't been for those interviews, it might have been a little harder because of school and work. And um, at the time, I was also supporting my four nieces and nephew back at home financially. So it was a pretty busy time for me and um so we would have like hours of interviews on the phone and a lot of hours where I was like spending crying and trying to get myself together and after sobbing um to you know trying to bring um the very emotional parts of my life and history together and those were you know kind of meaningful um times of the process for me and they were healing and um and after that just hours of emails a lot of emails back and forth and um and finally we got it all together and everything's been going smoothly since
0: we've been uh, dancing around the pandemic and it's, it's my belief that for maybe the rest of our lives every conversation will eventually lead to how was the pandemic for you um, so when I'm talking with with you guys, each part of this eyewitness series where you're writing because you've witnessed already something um, extraordinarily uh, extraordinary and, and traumatic, does that help put the pandemic in perspective to where okay, this is this is historically bad, but I I've, I've, I've been through bad before and so this that helps me to keep this as an even keel, or is it no protection whatsoever the pandemic is? Uh, is it, still pretty bad. Uh, fresh to
3: You know, I usually get a lot of um, backlash when I say this, but I really enjoyed the pandemic. <laughs> um, you know, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I, obviously it was very new to everyone. We all didn't know like what to expect. I was, I love being at schools. So I love being in the dorm. I was very sad when we had to get off campus and then move back in. So I moved in um, with my host family. And then, um, and the pandemic was, you know there was a lot happening. And that first week of the pandemic of the shutdown I just kept watching the news and it just always, there was like this one um, topic that just kept coming up the entire time. And it was that on top of, you know aside from the elderly, the homeless are the second vulnerable community um, that's being hit the hardest by the pandemic, and because all the homeless shelters were closed, they didn't have any access to food, bathing, anything for them to really survive, you know, and they would get a lot of their foods from these homeless shelters, and all of a sudden I was like, I have to do something because, you know, I had been previously homeless, so I know what that's like, and um, I remember that my host family had a big pile of like clothes that they were trying to take to goodwill. And then I just started like sewing masks out of them, out of all the clothes. And then um, I was, I would just, you know, pass them around to the homeless in the community. And all these cars would stop by and they'd like, just roll down the windows and be like, hey, can I get three? <laughs> so then they just like cost some money. And I was like, ah, this is so safe for them, it's free. And then um and then I just started like getting a lot of people you know like they were reaching out like hey you heard you're doing this and eventually it turned into a sewing business um that's helping the refugees and homeless and so you know but then at the same time like the pandemic the pandemic was very very busy for me because I was sewing all night and all day just very, very long hours, but it was so worth it because I wanted to be there for a community that was so longing for help for survival. And, you know, on top of that, I loved that I could be in seven different places, like within 30 seconds, you know, from this meeting to this meeting, I feel like you guys can probably relate, like when you're doing a lot of humanitarian work, and you're an activist, that you are very, very busy. Um, you know, I didn't have to like keep flying. I didn't. My bag wasn't packed every weekend, so it was just I was able to sit at my desk and do so many of my projects and do so many meetings from like across the country, just from the same room that I was sewing in.
0: Autumn, I know you've been doing um, some similar activities. Uh, we were talking about before the show. So, how was your pandemic?
1: Um, I don't want to say my pandemic was just like another. Part of history. Um, So I advocate for immigration reform, and the pandemic just exposed a lot of the disparities that were in this country. So I live in New York City. um, So the homelessness, I agree with you, was really bad. Um, We were also at the Trump administration, who was like illegal, you know, talking bad about illegal immigrants and immigrants. So a lot of them were afraid to even come out the house. Um, Before the pandemic, I was already doing food distribution, but never at a large scale. But during the pandemic, I was home. People were calling me like, I'm afraid to come out. Um, they might pick me up. They might arrest me. Can you please get me food? So I'm like, sure. I started just calling other organizations that I already work with. And they're like, yeah, come pick up food. And I would load up my little car. I do not know how I fit thousands of boxes in my car. But I was able to load up my car and just drive food around to people who really need it. But the the thing about the immigrant community, like we are a network. So I would help five people today and they would tell five other people. And then that list just grew. And it was just like, I can't do this. We had over 75 volunteers. Um, We had central locations in every borough and we would distribute food. Um, A lot of our funding came from the USDA, uh, from private organizations, but we were just feeding the community. Um, A lot of the people were also vulnerable with the elderly. Um, When we knocked on the doors... You know, everyone has a different story. Until you knock on that door and speak to them, you won't know their stories. So, yes, I have my own story. But there are a lot of people out there who have stories that they should write a book. And, you know, like I said, I was writing my book at this time. I was very busy. My, all, my Zoom calls were on my phone. I was literally out every single day of the pandemic. And it was it was hard. But at the same time, I didn't have the time to process the things that were going on. Because there were so many people that needed help. And what made it more frustrating is that the people who were in charge in Congress, the president, were making smart decisions. And we're on the ground doing the work. And we were not even, you know, the doctor so-and-so is going to be the hero. But my volunteers were the heroes. They were risking their lives every day and making sure people get food. So I just wish we were part of the pandemic. I I don't know the pandemic team. I don't know if there was, but in part of changing that, I don't think the city was ready to open, but you know, It's not up to us. It's up to the guys who make the big bucks. (laughs) But, you know, all we can do is just continue to advocate. I'm still doing food distributions. I'm still going to advocate for immigration reform. I'm still going to advocate for all those um, Muslims who are detained and not charged um, and who've just been harassed by NYPD, FBI, and CIA. That's all we can continue to do until we're heard.
2: Uh, Salvador, over to you. How was your pandemic? My pandemic? um it was definitely interesting um I'd say that there were a lot of things going on it was the first time that um I was back at home uh for an extended period of time since going to boarding school and my stepsisters were also uh here at home um and sort of we were all at least in my house the beginning we, we weren't used to spending extended times extended periods of time with each other anymore um so definitely, there was some tension um, in the in the early days of the pandemic. Um, on top of that, I was also still in my junior year of high school, so I was doing virtual school, which was very strange. I mean, and you know, trying to get back to normal and 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 do work while there was this virus killing everyone around me. And at that point, you know, we had no idea; the virus is still new to us. It was killing people left and right, and we were all scared. We didn't know we fears of it, whether or not it was airborne or things like that, and they just. You know, my so my family and I did not leave our, our apartment, uh, um, not even to go out for a walk for 60 days since the lockdown. So it wasn't until around May. I forget the day, but some day around May when we felt comfortable enough to even take a walk outside. Um, so for those 60 days, I was in my house um, and I, I, I breathed no fresh. I mean, I opened the windows, but saw, saw the, Nazi, the you know, the, the real light of day. So definitely, that was, that was tough. And how, how? What was the size of the apartment? Um, not very. I mean, it's it's three bedrooms, and and my my sisters in one, me in another, and and my my mom my said that in another. Um, and our living room in her kitchen, and all that. Um, so, I mean, it's just just right for us. Um, and on top of that, I I didn't see my dad. Um, for for all those days. Um, wasn't until like June where I started like. I'd walk around my dad, um, like take walks around because we didn't, obviously, so I, I'm, you know, compromised and I have a few medical conditions that put me at risk. So I I, I took, I wanted to take zero risk. Um, They would put me, you know, uh, me vulnerable to, to catching COVID. So I'd see like my dad and grandparents, I'd walk around the the closest park with them, masks and distance at the, at the time. Um, I, I couldn't see any of my friends. I mean, my, my friends from home were getting together and all that, Um, but that wasn't, a risk I was willing to take and then sort of having been at boarding school too I had most of my friends were now you know from school and then everyone was dispersed so we were all sort of trying to check in and stay in touch and that was definitely hard for a lot of us on top of that I was working on these interviews um, for a book that I was yet to know I was writing um and also dealing with doing also all sorts of virtual speaking engagements that were either canceled or postponed or changed to virtual uh, because of that pandemic. In January, I was I spoke at the World Economic Forum in Davos in January of 2020, and sort of, I was riding that wave of speaking engagements. I had speaking engagements in Scotland, in, in, in Belarus, in, in London, um, in Belgium, and all these got canceled because um, of COVID. Some of them went remote, um, but I'd say that it was definitely a moment when a lot of things shifted, a lot of things, all of a sudden abruptly changed uh, for me. And it was not easy for most of it. I did do a lot of reading though, during the pandemic. I think I read like 35 or 36 books. Um, I kept, I kept track of them on Goodreads. Um, So I did do a lot of reading uh, over, over the pandemic. I think that's the best that could have come out of it. Um, Especially with all the uncertainty that I felt and sort of the the tension and all that. I really delved into reading. I just, when I wasn't doing homework, I just sit in my little reading chair in my room and just devour books. So that was definitely a, a fun thing.
0: No, that sounds like uh, about the best use of your time you could make. Um, and it occurs to me that you guys are starting off here with your with your debut novels, working with Dave Eggers, who, of course, the uh, esteemed audience knows is the author of a heartworking, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, "A Hologram for the King," all sorts of great stuff. Um, have you caught the book bug? Are, are you gonna be one and done? Are you, have you got ideas for future books and might you ever think about vert, uh, venturing into fiction as well? Salvador,
2: we'll start with you. Uh, I think I'm definitely interested in in, in continuing to write. I, I'm i not sure about fiction. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the strong suit that I currently see in me. Maybe it develops, maybe not. Um, but definitely have uh, a few ideas for for next works um and i'm already in the process of sort of like formulating them and 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 doing stuff so hopefully hopefully hurricane my story of resilience is the first of of if not another many other books fresh um, to how about you have you caught the bug
0: the writing bug back COVID? <laughs>
3: <laughs> um you know i guess kind of similar to salvador i started doing a lot of writing, like when I was around middle school, high school that I wanted to publish by, you know, early college, and that didn't really go through. So, um, but I definitely don't see Courage being the last of it. I do hope to continue this work. Um, You know, being super interested in journalism, I kind of see that um, happening already. So um, I hope that this is just the first of many down the road.
0: Well, fantastic. We'll all get together and do this again in a few years with your new books. Uh, and uh, Adama, how about you? Have you caught the writing bug?
1: I, I don't know. I feel different. I don't think there's a part two to accuse. I mean, I just recently got my citizenship. So maybe if they do offer me, I can write a whole book about that ordeal, that seven-year ordeal. Um, but I don't see, I, I do right now uh, for my kids. Um, I think it's important to leave writing, um, especially our words, for the next generation. So I just write on a side, just for them, but not for the world. <laughs> so we'll see.
0: Well, congratulations on your your citizenship. Can you give us just a little preview? If you were to write a book, what would you what would you want people to know about the
1: process of obtaining your citizenship? Oh, I don't even know where to begin. I it was just as so I've been in the immigration system, in the immigration court, I should say, since I was 16. So for the last 16 years, I've been in court fighting to stay in the United States. Um, so I think the, I will talk about all that ordeal from the beginning to the end. Because my book really talks about the the FBI and 9-11. Um, it touches a little about immigration, but not as much as I, I, you know, I wish it did. But then again, I couldn't talk about my case because we filed a federal lawsuit. And it was still pending um, at the time I was writing this book. Um, But I did win. And now I'm an American citizen. um, But I think I would start with that immigration ordeal and how to fight the immigration system and how to reform it. So I think you just gave me a book idea. How to reform the immigration system.
0: (laughs) I'll be looking for my name to be featured prominently in the acknowledgements. (laughs) Uh, And then... um... Uh, Adama, you have got this wonderful documentary uh, featuring you and featuring your family, which I was uh, watching part of earlier today. What's the name of that documentary forever or esteemed audience to be checking it out right now?
1: Sure. It's my name, Adama, A-D-A-M-A.
0: And when you have a film like that that stars you, that stars your family, the total strangers have now seen the, you know, where, 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 where um, you're Your parents sleep. I think at one point the camera's literally in their bedroom. How does that impact you? How does that impact them now that you're, you know, movie stars?
1: (laughs) I don't think we're movie stars yet. I think when Halle Berry starts playing me, then I can say I'm a movie star. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so a lot of people, they ask about where is everyone now? So they're surprised to know the little boy who's running naked in a movie. He's 17 now and he's you know, up to the ceiling tall. So they're like, I can't believe it. I think a lot of people are like, I feel like I grew up with your family. Um, I do post on social media, like updates about my family. I think people are curious to know how we came, you know, out of this traumatic experience. Um, But most of them are always interested in my brother, Abdul, um, who you'll see the documentary, who really held the camera. (laughs) Um, And they're interested to know who he is now and what, what he does. Um, And I usually just update them, Um, but I think it was important for them to see that. I think it was important for the world to see that because you're here painting me as this horrible person that's about to do horrible things, and I'm showing you my bedroom, and I'm showing you my siblings and my family and what we do and who we really are. So it's like changing the narrative.
0: Well, at that point, I mean, the FBI had already been through everything that that you had out there, right? So you were already sort of living in the public sphere. You were just broadening it out by, by being a documentary in a way, right?
1: Yes. Um, again, our, so when we first got arrested, our stories were plastered. But because we were minors, our name wasn't. But, if, you know, the Muslim community small. New York City small. Eventually, people found out who I was. Um, So it was important for me to make sure that the world understands I'm not that person. It's very rare for people to, well, the community thinks that the FBI doesn't just walk up and accuse you, but Black and Latino, people of color, you know, who have history um, showing that they do get targeted and this is what they go through. They know what I went through. They know that I was innocent. But for other audience who've never experienced that kind of discrimination, for them is like, well, it's it's hard for them to believe that I was innocent, especially at a time where fear was being used. So it was important to have that film out and to have my narrative out.
0: Now that you you're you're a citizen of the country. Um, do you uh feel that you are free to go about your life at this point are you still worried that uh, somebody somewhere is always watching you if there's a a truck parked across the street there's maybe somebody with a microphone and it listening how how do you feel do you feel that you're under surveillance as as we're speaking
1: i probably am but at this point i don't care um i just hope that if i'm being mugged they step in (laughs) I just don't care. I have nothing to hide. Um, I do know that I am being surveilled because every time I travel, I get that extra screen in or every time I come into the country, I get that extra screen And I'm constantly stopped by NYPD. I just recently was stopped in Indiana. Um, and uh, we, I just recently learned about the gang database. So it's this database that the NYPD created and anybody could be on it. Um, even you could be on it. As if you live in a poor neighborhood, or if you've seen with a gang member, you're put on this de- database. And the only way to be taken out of that database is to uh, if you die, pretty much. Um, you're young. I I forgot what's the youngest, but they have high schoolers there, middle schoolers on that gang database, and. I'm, and the attorneys and I were just talking that I might be on that database. And the only way to find out is to file a lawsuit, to file a, um, a FOIA, because I was on so many lists, but I wouldn't know until I filed a lawsuit. Like, I was on a no-fly list. I didn't know I was on a no-fly list until I tried to fly. Um, my immigration case was uh, under CARP. Um, I forgot what the acronym stands for, but it was Extra Review of My Citizenship. But CARP is another organization, another umbrella. So you won't know really what list you're on and what surveillance you're being on until you actually file a lawsuit, which is sad. But um, is the reality that we live in right now. But the more I talk about my story, the more that Salvador and Fresta talk about her story, the more we bring awareness to our situations and we change it. Um, that's the only thing we can do for now. Because I don't want my children to live the, the trauma that I've lived through. And if I can advocate more to change that, I would do that.
0: Something I I, would heard you say um, is that you were cautioning, you've got a video cautioning that we should not be referring to the January 6th mob as terrorists. Um, I'm not comfortable calling them tourists. Why shouldn't we call them terrorists and what would be a better way to refer to them?
1: So the reason why I had said that is because the history I have shown, they wanted to make new laws about domestic terrorism. But we already had laws for domestic terrorism. We have laws about terrorism in general. Um, As I said in my video, they found the laws to arrest me and accuse me of terrorism. If I had done what they have done, trust me, I would be under the jail right now. Um, But it was important because during a pandemic, a lot of my volunteers were Black Lives Matter protesters. And every morning I would hear their stories of what they went through during the protests, how they were tear gas, how they were hit by the police, different situations. Now, if that that's domestic terrorism t- um, law was applied or passed, guess who's gonna suffer? Uh, peaceful protesters, People like myself who are we were gonna be considered domestic terrorism. So it's, it's not gonna help. These laws only affect people of color. We already have the laws. They just have to use those laws. We just recently had a school shooter again. And what picture did they use? They used a a picture of a middle school praying. I I don't understand. And again, we cannot, they are terrorists, but we cannot call them that because then they're going to use peaceful protesters as terrorists too.
0: And um, uh, Frishta, I wanted to ask you uh, about your plans. I know that you're currently majoring in international relations and pre-law at Calvin College. Is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you're planning to pursue internships with the United Nations and American Enterprise Institute. Uh, and that you're hoping to advocate for international human rights going forward. So, how are you going to go uh, about that, and what does what does what does the future look like ideally?
3: Yeah, um, right now I'm in the process of applying to law schools and um, trying to see where I can get a full right because, like I mentioned earlier, I'm the financial supporter for my nieces and my nephew. So, um, and they recently got evacuated from Afghanistan. So they just got to Michigan about two weeks ago. Um, so I hope to do, you know, all of those through going to law school. Um, you know, growing up in Afghanistan, our justice system was really non-existent. There was so much corruption happening, so many human rights abused every single day, and you know, all of it in the name of, you know, uh, you know everyone has different views of religion, but there were a lot of like religious heads in my community that was, you know, sexually assaulting women that were abusing every other system in so many ways. And yet, because they kept saying, "Yeah, you know, and they carried the name of Allah, everything would be fine. And they kept getting away with it. And that was something that I watched from a very young age. And it made me so angry. And I knew from age of seven that I was going to do something in the legal field. And so um, that's where we're in the process um, right now.
0: Uh, and then uh, Salvador, I wanted to make sure I ask you about the, um, uh, the, the organization you founded, the Light and Hope for Puerto Rico uh, and how you were able to raise more than $100,000 for purchasing uh, solar powered lamps, is that right?
2: correct. Yeah. So Light and Hope for Puerto Rico. Uh, it was the humanitarian initiative that I found that I, t- I tell the story of in hurricane started with a mission of raising a hundred thousand dollars to purchase 1000 solar lamps and a thousand hand crank washing machines uh, to reach 1000 households in a town called Loisa in Puerto Rico that was affected not only by hurricane Maria, but also by hurricane Irma two weeks prior. Uh, so it began as, as that, 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 already ambitious goal that I was very fearful to set, and obviously, and and I tell that story in in Hurricane, um, that lofty goal of $100,000, we ended up nearly doubling it, nearly reaching $200,000 through both the online crowdfunding, uh, but also corporate donations. Uh, Now, I'd say a lot of it, um, a lot of the reason why, a lot of the reasons why the campaign was effective in in raising money um, was twofold. I think one of them was not only of course the effort that I put into into you know outreach and and, and ma- reaching out to everyone I knew and, and sort of trying to get the word going about this campaign, uh, but also how national media picked up the campaign very quickly within within days uh, of my launching the crowdfunding campaign. Um, that's something for which I'm very grateful how, how media sort of took a chance on me and, and shared my story, even though I was just a, a ninth grader who was, you know, had this idea and had this goal. Um, I had no prior accolades, no prior experience. It would, you know, I guess, like make me worthy of of nearly two thousand backers' trust. But I guess it it worked out. And obviously, as as we started delivering results and started posting pictures of our distributions and 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 all that, obviously it started helping. Um, But I'm really grateful for all the people who who took a chance on on me and on Light and Hope of Puerto Rico, uh, and led it to be the success that it was.
0: We have talked um, about some rather heavy subjects this podcast, and I imagine esteemed audience thinks, well, there's no way he's going to follow that up with his usual trite question about flying saucers and ghosts that he asks everybody every week. No, esteemed audience, of course I'm going to ask. We would never fail to have that conversation. So, Salvador, I'll start with you. Have you ever seen a
2: flying saucer and or a ghost? Um no to the flying saucer um i maybe felt a ghost i don't know um go on on. uh i stayed once in this uh this old castle in france once um was invited uh a mom's a friend of mom's invited us um and there's, you know, there's there's just an air. It's it's an old castle. You just feel it in the walls. Um, and you'd hear the doors just creak middle of the night and just the floor creaks. And I don't I don't know. I've never seen a ghost, but I've just, you know, felt stuff there. Felt felt weird stuff there.
0: Uh, and Adama, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost and or been
1: possibly touched by either? Uh, I have to agree with Salvador. I probably I probably didn't even notice it was a ghost. Um, we do believe in jinns as uh, Muslims. So we do believe in ghosts. Um, so I'm pretty sure I bumped into them. I don't know. And thought it was casual. <laughs> um, as a flying saucer, no, I haven't seen one yet. Um, but if I do, I'll definitely let you know. <laughs> Just
0: come back immediately. We have to have that conversation as the sure. moment your experience has happened. Uh, and Freshter? Flying saucer and or a ghost.
3: Um, You know, like Adam has said, like in our culture, we also like believe in jinn, but I don't know if what the things I had seen back at home were ghosts or whatever, but there's like this whole stigma around it in our culture a lot. But so the yard that my family moved to once the Taliban moved out the first time, this yard was like full of the Taliban used it a lot to carry out a lot of their killings so there was a lot of people uh, buried in our yard and we didn't know um, but <laughs> I had seen weird things that I didn't know, like what they were but when I would I'd tell my mom she would be like oh like those are probably the spirits of the people who got you know murdered in this house and they're probably not going to do anything to you. So there that's all I have. Who knows if they were so
0: this spirits they're probably not going to do anything to you. Sleep tight. You'll <laughs> <It'll> be fine. <laughs>
2: yeah, I know,
0: right. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Well, this has just been a tremendous conversation. I'm, I'm watching the time, and I realize that we're coming right up to the end of it. But what a what a tremendous first episode of 2022! Um, I want to thank each of you for for being such an excellent guest. Uh, and my final question to you is. What are you hoping, most hoping that readers are going to take away from this eyewitness series? And what are you hoping that they will do as a result of having read uh, your experience? Uh, and then if you'd also tell us where uh, esteemed audience can find you on social media, uh, follow you online, all that good stuff, uh, and we'll go with the publicist order. So Adama,
1: you first. Um. You know, recently I've been responding that I hope people read out books and get encouraged to tell their story because this is not an Adama situation only. It's happened to thousands of other people. This is not just a Salvador situation. It's not just a Tory. We all have shared experience with others, but we have been chosen to tell the story. Um, So I hope when people read out books, they definitely um, get encouraged to write their own. Um, and how it impacted them and how we can get involved in changing whatever impacted them. Um, as in for, To find me, you can find me on social media. I have um, my name, Adam Ba and I'm not private, I'm public. So if anybody needs help, um, it's an open door. <laughs> Thank you.
0: And uh, Salvador, uh, what are you hoping that readers are gonna take away from your story and what do you hope that they'll do as a result?
2: Yeah, so I'd say that um, for my story and and the Eyewitness series in general, I'd say that I hope that uh, young readers or any reader for that matter really uh, reads our stories and and understands that uh, the challenges they face in their lives and the adversity they face is no reason why they should limit um, the impact they can have on others or hold back. I think that all of our stories share the common thread of of not only a a challenge and adverse experience we've had or experiences in our lives, uh, but also how we've turned that for the better and, and turned that uh, to support not only our family and our communities, but also everyone else around us. So I hope people understand that and use that um, as inspiration and are also empowered um, by our stories. We, we were all, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still a teenager, but we were all very, very young when we had these uh, these experiences. Um, and they're definitely experiences that I, we, I hope, at least that no average young person has. Um, but there will be the time when when a, when a few of us will have experiences like these um so i hope that when those come people really you know sort of take it with grace as much as they can and use it to to impact others i guess on about social media you can find you you can go to my website salvadorgomezcolon.com um or you can uh, look me up on twitter uh and instagram at, at s Cologne. i am private on my instagram so unfortunately i do not post public content on that um but you can request me and, and we can talk and see if, if I accept you. Um, but I am public on Twitter though. I do promise that I have to be more active on Twitter. I'm not very active, uh, but I promise I will be more. Is there a website for Light and Hope? Uh, no, there is no website for Light and Hope, but you can find all information about it on my personal website and all other uh, a projects that I'm working on as well. Uh, and Fresco?
3: Yeah, um, the main takeaway I want my audience to go with is how serious this issue is. Um, You know, we've had the Rwandan genocide that the world just kept brushing aside until it was way too late and we don't want that to happen. So um, I would love for them to be more educated on this issue but then also spread awareness. And, you know, spreading awareness has been one of the most effective ways to bring, um, you know, attention to this issue that's happening but then also raising leaders for them to take action um so i would love for them to um you know look into this issue further and see how serious this is and try to um you know um hold accountable everyone who has caused has been a you know play a role in this you can find me on instagram at and fresh torijan on facebook Freshda speaks and you can also um follow my advocacy page at Hazara Advocates USA. Thank you.
0: And I want esteemed audience for you, if you are an educator or a librarian, to get copies of the Eyewitness series, put them in your schools, put them available where young people are gonna read them. If you don't have any young people in your life, you read them, they're excellent books, you're gonna be in good shape. Uh, As always, for more interviews with editors, agents, authors, all the world's best people, go to MiddleGradeNinja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beast. And you know what, if there's space on the shelves, put that in your schools too. Uh, and as always, God Without a Life, I'll see you next week.